Welcome to The Burning Word, a podcast that invites you to return to the Word and encounter God again. It has been a while, but we are back. It's John Perrine, your host. I have moved to Chicago. I am settled in at Community Christian Church, Lincoln Park, uh, pastoring in Chicago once more. And it is just good to be back. I have some exciting ideas percolating about a new series that I'm going to hopefully get off the ground in the next couple weeks here. But in the meantime, I wanted to offer a quick bonus episode. We've been preaching these last three weeks at my church on the temptations of Jesus in the desert. And I think there's really three reasons why you might be interested in this episode. First, you might be interested if you yourself have been going through some kind of testing. I mean, if your life has been hard, if your faith has felt strained, which I think is fair to say probably for all of us in some way during this most recent season especially, testing has been real and so it's just helpful, interesting to reflect on how Jesus himself was tested. The second reason you might want to listen to this episode is that there in this scene is some key biblical themes that sweep from the whole scripture. So if you're interested in the Bible at all, if you want to learn more about who Jesus is, if you're just interested in knowing the story of how God worked in the Bible, this scene might be one of the most crucial and pivotal as the story of Jesus is unfolding. However, there's a final reason why I think you might be interested in this episode. If you have found yourself struggling with disenchantment, if you yourself are disillusioned, if there has been a sense in which you are disappointed with your faith, disappointed with God, disappointed in the church, this scene, I think, holds one of these key testing moments for Jesus where he has to confront all of the very real failures that humanity has encountered and experienced themselves. And yet in this scene, I think there's actually this invitation that really sits with the whole theme of this podcast, which is returning, returning to the word to encounter God again. So I think you're going to enjoy a buckle in. Can't wait to dive into this passage with you. Let's get started. All right, so with this episode, I just want to spend time in this gospel account, time in this story that you've probably heard something about, you've maybe read at some point, you've probably even heard it preached on. I feel like it's a pretty nice go-to when it comes to testing, temptation, Satan, evil, all that intriguing stuff. I mean, this story has everything we could want. And yet the real goal in this episode is to get back into the literary nuance of what's going on here in this passage, how this scene is capturing not just an intriguing moment in Jesus's life, but actually is holding together the whole sweep of the scriptures and offering us this personal reflection on testing in the wilderness. So if you open up a Bible, if you want to go along with me, I'm going to work from the Gospel of Luke. Though the first thing I would note is that this account is going to show up in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and each one is going to have a little something different. There's subtle, small changes. Uh, One of the most noticeable ones that we're going to talk about here is that Matthew is going to have a different arrangement of the temptations that Satan offers than Luke. Yet, for the most part, I mean, they're pretty parallel. They're holding the same story together, which often means, if you get into critical scholarship, that there's a strong association. I mean, critical scholars would deny any source historically of this account, Jesus being tested in the wilderness. It would be fanciful to them. And yet clearly this story mattered to the early church. Clearly the early church and the gospel writers found this to be an essential story in understanding who Jesus was. So in the gospel of Luke, we're going to open up at chapter four. 
And what we're going to find is this story is essential to understand in light of Jesus's baptism. All three gospels are going to tell us that Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River, that in Jesus's baptisms, the heavens are going to open up, that Jesus is going to be anointed by the Spirit like a dove descending from heaven, and then the Father's voice is going to say, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. There's a ton going on in Jesus' baptism, probably another episode for another time. The main thing to know with the baptism moment is that in addition to it being a very helpful initiation into why Christians should be baptized, what's really going on in Jesus' baptism is that he's there in the Jordan River. The Jordan River is the place that Israel entered the Promised Land. If you go back to the book of Joshua, you would remember that Joshua led the people through the Jordan, that the ark had to enter into the waters of the Jordan. Literally, the people had to get into the water in order for the waters to be parted so that the people could then enter the promised land, and that this clearly itself was an echo of God's previous deliverance back at the Red Sea when Moses puts a staff on the ground, the waters are parted so that Israel can be led through the waters, even as Pharaoh's army is consumed by the waters. All of this is percolating, and what it should tell us, in addition to getting into all kinds of other stuff, like Jesus' baptism, referencing Psalm 2, having this Davidic anointing in which Jesus is this Messiah figure who's being called by God to now come lead his people in a new exodus through this river, is that Israel's story is clearly in view. Clearly, we're meant to be thinking about Israel. Clearly, we're meant to be thinking about the ways in which Israel were called by God, but also clearly we're meant to be holding in our mind that Israel at many key moments, particularly after God saved them from bondage in Egypt, found themselves struggling with what it meant to be the people of God in a faithful way to who God was. So all that context sets us up for Luke 4 verse 1, and here's what it says. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Now, clearly the Spirit is in view here, and that in and of itself is kind of interesting. We're going to run into this complex question as to what is going on in this scene. Is this just an assault on Jesus from the devil? You know, is Jesus blindsided by Satan popping up and attacking him? Or is this actually an intentional testing by God himself? Is God in some mysterious and yet important way leading Jesus to face this confrontation? Luke would seem to put a lot of emphasis especially on Jesus being full of the Holy Spirit, returning from the Jordan, now being led by the Spirit into this wilderness. The Spirit is calling Jesus forward to go face what is waiting for him in the wilderness. Now, I've been hyping Israel's story here, so you're probably catching it. That term for wilderness, clearly for any Jewish audience in the first century would have immediately evoked the 40 years that Israel wandered in the wilderness before they entered the promised land. If you think about a wilderness, it's rather a difficult but compelling image, isn't it? Have you ever stopped to ask yourself, why would it matter so much for God's people? God's people Israel, who God so miraculously saved in Egypt. Why would it matter that they spent so much time in the wilderness? The wilderness as an image 
literally evokes a desert. In my mind, the wilderness brings up tumbleweeds sort of bouncing around, and yet in an ancient world, it's even more terrifying than that. The wilderness is deeply unsafe. There's animals in the wilderness. The wilderness is inhospitable. It's difficult to find water. It's difficult to find food. There's no crops that are being grown. And the wilderness is profoundly lonely. Like imagine yourself, if you've ever had a chance to go camping and you've been out fully removed from all society, imagine being there in the dark with no lights, no sense of safety, no roof over your head. This is the experience of the wilderness. It's transitional, it's inhospitable, it's lonely. And so we're told that Jesus goes into the wilderness, the very place that Israel themselves spent so much time. And now this is verse 2. For 40 days, he was tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. You might have caught there that Luke and Mark actually both are intentional to tell us that all 40 days Jesus is in the wilderness, he is being tested. So I always previously had thought of these temptations of Satan as kind of three distinct moments that are maybe the pinnacle or the culmination. But Luke wants to get our mind that the 40 days themselves are just a testing. The 40 days themselves are this relentless tempting by the devil. And of course, the amount of time, the length of the stay in the wilderness matters. Jesus is here for 40 days because Israel spent 40 years. Jesus is clearly stepping in to Israel's experience in the wilderness, is facing in a micro expression through 40 days what Israel themselves went through for 40 years. And we're told that what that experience was like for Jesus was that of tempting by the devil. Now, I think this word tempting is actually a little bit difficult on our English ears. I always think tempting at least as a child, maybe hearing this story in Sunday school, thought tempting was this sort of alluring process in which the devil is trying to cozy up to and seduce Jesus. But instead, I think it can be helpful to know the Greek word here, parasimos, is actually the word that would be used for a testing of someone, or maybe even more accurately in our English sense, the word for a trial. Parasmos was what an athlete would go through if they were training for the Olympics. They would need to be tested. They would have to prove themselves in an Olympic trial in order to demonstrate that they were worthy of competing in the Olympic Games. And similarly, if you were to go before a court, you would be put on parasmos. This would be a trial or a testing of your case. So this isn't just alluring and seduction. Instead, Jesus is being tested by the devil. Jesus is, in this testing, facing the very hardships, the very struggles, the very isolation and overwhelming inhospitality of the wilderness in order to see or to demonstrate or to prove that Jesus, the Son of God, the beloved one of God, is capable of passing this test. As if that's not challenging enough, we're told that Jesus is going to spend these 40 days eating nothing at all. I always find that last phrase, at least in English, to be almost a humorous turn, (laughs) that Jesus, when those days were ended, was hungry. I think any of us who have gone a day of fasting know that sensation of hunger in our stomach. Any of us who have attempted more than a day know how hunger tends to compound, and yet you hit this moment metabolically at 40 days where your body is, in all senses, consuming itself. Jesus is facing the deteriorating effects of his body breaking down as everything within him craves the comfort of food. 
before we move to these three tests that Jesus is going to face, I want to sit for just one more second with this image of Jesus in the desert, in the wilderness for 40 days, and over the whole 40 days, not eating any food and being tested by Satan. As I sit with this scene, I can't help but wonder what was going on here. Now, there have been a number of rather intriguing film adaptations of this moment. Uh, one that I have actually never seen, but that is fascinating, I probably should watch it, is Martin Scorsese, who did The Last Temptation of Christ. Uh, Willem Dafoe, is Jesus. That alone is intriguing. Uh, apparently Sting was meant to be Pontius Pilate. I think David Bowie is in it as Pontius Pilate. It's kind of wild from what I understand. It's uh, sort of entering into this imaginative portrayal of how Jesus is struggling with all of these universal temptations, be it to food or to sex or to pleasure and comfort. Maybe a more interesting contemporary one is the 2015 Last Days in the Desert by Rodrigo Garcia that has Ewan McGregor in it as Jesus. And what I found most interesting about this portrayal, not that it in and of itself, it captured everything, was that it portrayed Jesus and Satan by the same actor, Ewan McGregor. And it really captured what it would be like for 40 days to go through the wilderness, wandering and not eating and being tested relentlessly over and over again by this image almost of the counter self. That's how Ewan McGregor portrays it. I think there's maybe still just a little too much of this inner outer struggle, but I, I think it gets closer in suggesting that this was a prolonged wearing down. Imagine the worst thoughts you've had being repeated over and over again as you get weaker and weaker, and you can begin to picture what it would have been like for Jesus to be visited relentlessly, tested relentlessly, spoken and whispered to, shouted at relentlessly by the accuser as he wanders for 40 days and 40 nights in the desert. And the last thing before we, we move forward here to cover is the devil himself. The devil is one of those figures that has all kinds of reference points that can be incredibly disorienting. So if you're like me, growing up, I feel like the devil was always the red devil with pointy ears and a pitchfork and was clearly evil, but was often goofy, strange. You then get into some of the more dedicated, apocryphal accounts of Christians who really like to emphasize that the devil was Lucifer, a fallen angel, and so they'll get into how the devil actually needs to be portrayed as something beautiful, as this angelic type figure that maybe is helpful. There also is a sense in which the devil is associated with a serpent. The devil seems to be in charge of some cohort of demons, which the Bible never really spells out or gets super clear about. I mean, the most demonic information we get is actually going to be through the ministry of Jesus himself. That all kind of highlights this important question, which I don't know is easy to wrestle with. What does the Bible tell us about Satan, about the devil? What do we actually know if you step back from all of the subconscious cultural myths that have been built up around the devil? If you think about it, there is surprisingly little in the scriptures that explicitly lays out who this character is, where this character came from, and what this character's role is in relationship to God. However, the clearest sense we get of who the devil is is rooted in the name for the devil that we find in Hebrew, which is Hasatan. Hasatan, that is the accuser. 
the accuser. And the devil really starts to emerge in the book of Job, especially, where we're going to find the devil be this figure who's kind of ambiguous in Job, that's an accuser present within the court, the throne room court of God. As you think about this title, the accuser, the Satan, ultimately the best description we have is that there is a figure whose purpose is to live oppositionally in accusation against humanity. What's so challenging about this role of the devil, the accuser, is that often humanity is culpable and fallible at precisely the points of accusation that the devil is going to bring forth. So when the serpent tests Eve and challenges Eve that God did not say that she would die, that God did not say she could not eat this fruit, ultimately Eve caves to the accusations of the devil. And from that point on, whenever the accuser presents an accusation against humanity, there often is some rootedness in the truth of what that accusation is bringing. In the court of law, the evidence has accumulated that humanity is culpable. So we're going to find that same dynamic playing out here. We know both intuitively and culturally at this point in the first century, that the devil had begun to take shape in the cultural ethos and imagination of the people of Israel as the great adversary that had been present from the beginning. All the way from the Garden of Eden, the serpent figure probably associated in some way with fall, the angelic fall that is referenced in the books of Ezekiel and Isaiah, is carried through to a figure that is now confronting Jesus, accusing Jesus, testing Jesus in the wilderness. As maybe just one last note on this, I have found sometimes that I have wavered back and forth. C.S. Lewis will talk about this. This real fascination with the devil. As I talk about the devil for you, maybe you are totally here. You, you understand and even grasp intuitively there is evil in this world. Surely there is a figure whose sole purpose is to undermine, to allege, to accuse, to tempt. And the devil then becomes a helpful explanation of where all of this testing is coming from, where all this manipulation, where all the corruption comes from. Even as I think about my own life, those quiet moments when I sense a disturbing thought, a disturbing voice in my head, almost like something within me is speaking, but it doesn't seem to be me. That, that This is how Christians have often associated the struggle against evil, the struggle against temptation, the struggle against demonic figures with Satan, because Satan seems, in this mindset, clearly to have a place, a place of prominence in the struggle of what every Christian encounters as they attempt to follow God. Yet, on the other hand, I've also had seasons, strong seasons, where the devil seems so simplistic in how culture has kind of built the devil up, like there's one figure that's pointy-eared and pitched fork, running around accusing us, that the devil almost becomes like a Santa Claus, like an idea that maybe matters, but that's hard to kind of get my head around or to even believe in if you really break down the logistics of who the devil is. And I'd say in our modern world especially, even in the spiritual formation worlds that I walk in, in the Christian faith, as we're trying to wrestle with what it means to live into the scriptures, but to also live out the scriptures here in the present, the devil can be kind of hard to get our heads around. We can almost become too obsessed or too disinterested with the devil. 
I think just to name it as I'm walking through these testings in the wilderness, clearly, clearly, the Bible tells us there is some supernatural world which we do not yet have access to, but that we must be aware of, that by faith we hold out our hands and our hearts to, and understand just as the Spirit of God is moving around us, so too the forces of accusation, the accuser, the forces of evil itself are also present and working in this world. And yet, as I hold that out, I don't think the point of this scene is for us to begin seeing a devil under every stone or to begin blaming every test or trial in our life on the devil. Instead, I think one of the ways I've heard it most helpfully talked about was by the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, who's pointed out that even a modern person with no awareness of the spiritual can understand what it feels like when you're part of an organization or even just a friendship group, when a culture starts to form around something, like when there begins to be this sense in which you'd almost call it a spirit of either fun or a spirit of optimism, or or maybe it's something more nefarious, like a spirit of greed, spirit of competitiveness, spirit of distrust. That, I think, is one of the most helpful ways of beginning to draw awareness to the way in which something is at work in this world around it. There is some spirit of evil which often presses in, accuses, undermines, and corrupts. And the worst part is knowing, being aware of the fact that I myself have both felt the presence and pressure of that evil and I have at points given into the evil that is being presented to me. That's the worst part about the devil, realizing that the evil the devil presents here in this scene is an evil that I have participated in in my worst moments when I've caved to the testing, the temptations, the trials that are put on display in front of me. If that's true, if the devil is real even as the devil is not meant to be under every stone and behind every floorboard that creaks in our house, what we can see in this scene is that Jesus is about to confront the great force of accusation and evil that has been present from the very beginning when Adam and Eve were tested and surely was moving at different points throughout the people of Israel, throughout the hearts of men and women who fell over and over again into the rebellion, selfishness, and pride that humanity has struggled with from our very creation. And so Jesus is about to face this, and that has to make us wonder, with a little bit of anticipation, what is the test going to be, and how is Jesus going to respond to this test that so many of us have failed over and over again? We find in very concise language three tests. Three tests that the devil is going to confront Jesus with. This is now verse 3. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Interesting. The first test, the first trial. Clearly, the devil does know Jesus has power. In fact, the devil knows, and this is what's so interesting about the gospels, the devil knows that Jesus is the Son of God. One of the funny things about the Synoptic Gospels is that they often don't place these affirmations, these clear affirmations, in the mouths of ordinary people. 
that Jesus is God himself, that Jesus is the Son of God. Yet, repeatedly, it is the demonic, and particularly in this scene, it is the devil that is the first to acknowledge, or maybe more accurately, I should say, to test the certainty of this claim if you are the Son of God. While I'm going to do my best to note each test as distinct, I think there are distinct dynamics to each test, this refrain, if you are the Son of God, is clearly an identity test of who Jesus is. And this seems to be, at least on a first pass, the true heartbeat of what Satan is going after. If, if you are the Son of God. I think it's helpful to know when we think of our own testing that this identity claim, this identity trial by Satan resonates with the identity trial that each of us are going to undergo whenever we find ourselves tempted by some offering, some idol, some competing value out there in the world. What's so profound and beautiful about the Gospels, about Jesus himself, is that Jesus not only is the Son of God, claims to be the Son of God, but then extends that sonship, the inheritance of everything it means to be the Son of God, out to all of us as co-heirs and fellow children. In fact, this is the claim of adoption in the epistles of Paul especially that's so breathtaking when you see it in the sweep of what it means across the scriptures. We are invited through Jesus' sonship to be children with God. And if we are children, Paul tells us, Jesus tells us, if we're children, then we can ask God for what we need. Then we know God will provide for us. I mean, what father doesn't want to care for their children? Yet that is precisely why Satan is going to go after sonship. Why Satan is going to go after identity so often in each of us. If you know you are the child of God, the deeply beloved co-heir with Jesus, a true son, a true daughter of God, then you would not need to prove who you are, to even prove your capability to meet your own needs. You wouldn't need to bolster your status to compete with those around you. But if you are unsure, if you will be tested in that identity, if there's any part of you that wavers, then you might, you might just find yourself moved and compelled to attempt to reach out your hands and take that which you are unsure if it is rightfully yours. The devil's going to go after Jesus' identity as a son, and this first test is going to offer Jesus the chance to demonstrate his power as that son, as a miracle worker, clearly changing a stone into bread is something significant that few, if any, could accomplish. But on a more existential level, what I find so symbolically rich about this first test is that Satan's clearly playing with Israel's story too, isn't he? In commanding a stone to become bread, the first great pang of Israel after Egypt is that they are hungry. And the first great act that God does after he brings them through the Red Sea is to provide them bread from heaven. In fact, when we pray in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, we are stepping back into Israel's story in the wilderness when they were forced every day to wait on God to provide the bread for this day. They couldn't store it up. They couldn't hold on to it. Instead, they had to trust 
in faith that God would yet again meet their needs tomorrow. Actually, when, the more you sit with this testing by Satan, it's really going after the heart of what it means to be a child, the heart of what it means to be dependent on God, to resist your hunger, to resist that pang within yourself that demands attention, that demands satisfaction, that demands some kind of fullness or fulfillment, and instead to live disciplined in trust. When you actually start to think about hunger in your own life even, just the daily reality of hunger, I would be the first to acknowledge I struggle with hunger all the time. I've had seasons where I've overeaten. I've had seasons where I've really leaned into facing my hunger, but I find that my default, my neutral gear as I live throughout life is to sense in my body the daily grind of hunger, to feel the ache of hunger as almost a deep existential dread, and then to do almost anything I can in my power to avoid having to experience that ache of hunger. So I find I'll snack in between meals just to avoid feeling hungry. I'll eat more at most meals in order to try to avoid the sense that I might be hungry again. And if that's just like a daily physiological reality for me, it forces me to step back and see that's actually a truly apt depiction of my greater spiritual existence. I live my life trying to avoid any aches of spiritual, emotional longing. I just the other week, I tend to go through ups and downs like I'm sure all of you do, where even sometimes unexplainable to me or maybe unnoticed by me, I'll just find myself dipping, having a low day. And I caught myself having one of these low days. And as I did, I just started to look back over the past 24 hours and I could see the arc where work had kind of stalled out. It was a little bit bored. I was a little bit frustrated with a couple key projects. I weren't moving ahead. I felt a little overwhelmed, a little isolated, a little disconnected. And as I saw all of those arcs, I began to notice how almost intuitively something in me began to avoid those spiritual longings presenting themselves. Like I could sense a mini depression was coming and I then ate extra food. And then, and then I went to the gym and I worked out extra hard. And then I did this extra long push with work trying to see if I could just get those couple of things ahead. And then I, I quickly turned on my phone and then I quickly turned to the television and then I quickly poured myself a drink. And in all of these avoidance tactics, all I was trying to do was to fill up my spiritual state with enough distraction, enough numbing, enough fullness so that I wouldn't have to face the hunger, that pang, that ache of feeling a deep longing that was not in the present moment being satisfied by what I was looking for. I think this is what's so profound about this first test. It's not just that the devil questions Jesus' sonship or tells him to perform a miracle. It's that Satan presses on the deep ache of human existence, our hunger itself, and offers Jesus the chance, if he would but lean in and flex his power, to be able to satisfy himself. Like, Jesus, you could eat bread right now if you just turn that stone into some food. Wouldn't you like to feel full instead of currently being hungry. Here's what Jesus answers him. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, 
Jesus beautifully takes the devil to the scriptures. In fact, Jesus is going to reference Deuteronomy 8.3. Deuteronomy is this incredible book. I hope at some point we do a study of it for the burning word. The power of Deuteronomy is that it's coming after Israel has already been in the wilderness. I love that this is the reflection by Moses. After Moses himself has spent 40 years living off of manna, living off of this daily bread, what Moses is going to say is, man shall not live by bread alone. And then if you go back to Deuteronomy 8.3, which Jesus is clearly referencing, the verse concludes, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Man shall not live by bread alone. There isn't actually enough bread to satisfy our hungers. There isn't actually enough food to fill that ache. That longing of our spiritual existence, whatever the longing is for you, the emotional longings, the relational longings, the vocational longings, they cannot be satisfied by bread. There's something so profound about this very physical sign that Jesus gives us in responding to the first test, the first trial. It's this sign that Jesus insists we cannot depend on momentary fulfillments or distractions in order to meet the deeper longings and existential needs of our souls. God wants to satisfy you. God wants to fill you. God wants to be the source, like the sun that you return to over and over and over again. And yet what's so compelling and so challenging about this image from Jesus's life is that Jesus insists if you're going to be filled by the one source that could actually satisfy you, what it will likely take is you saying no over and over again to smaller sources that offer momentary distractions but cannot actually fill up the deeper aches of your existence. I think as I sit with Jesus' spiritual fortitude in this moment to embrace his hunger, to embrace the bodily ache of longing for food, but to not just, to not just cave and give in to a momentary relief, but instead to hold, hold this position of hunger so that he can see more clearly a deeper spiritual satisfaction. That, in some ways, is actually the portrait of the Christian life. This is why fasting has been so important as a spiritual discipline for the people of God. This is why fasting is, if you've never tried it, one of the hardest challenges that you actually can enter into that gets your attention most vividly and most clearly. It's one of the best exercises to prepare yourself for the larger onslaught of struggles, the larger onslaught of temptations, the larger onslaught of testing that's going to hit you daily over and over again. I think especially as someone living in the city right now, one of the clearest connections I have with other city dwellers is just how much we all love food. Some of the reason you stay in the city is because you love how good some of the coffee shops are. You love how good some of the foodie restaurants are. And yeah, I can't help but notice the city almost thrives 
off of this allurement in which they say, we can keep stimulating you. We can keep giving you temporary satisfaction. Like if you stay here in the orbit of culture in the middle of the city, then we'll just keep throwing new opportunities, new, new delights to kind of distract and to numb out and to help quell those deeper longings. If we just keep your stomach topped up enough, then maybe you'll stop noticing those deeper spiritual soul level aches that whenever you get quiet and still for too long resurface again in your heart. The point, of course, is not that food itself is evil. In fact, Luke will go out of his way through the rest of his Gospels to show that Jesus ate and drank with his friends. Jesus did not live a life that denied that there are great joys and happinesses to be found in the food of this world. Yet Jesus practiced in this moment an embrace of his hunger, an embrace of the ache, because he saw the true source that was waiting for him could only be found in the voice of his heavenly father. This is the first test, and I already feel convicted. So what happens next in the second test? This is verse 5. And the devil took Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. Okay, there's a number of fascinating things going on here. I mentioned before that Luke flips the tests of Jesus. Matthew and Mark both have this test where Satan shows him all the kingdoms of the world as the culminating test. And I think in just a moment we'll see why this resonates and makes sense. This is such a monumental test of the human condition. This is a huge test that Jesus himself will face. Yet Luke seems to have the reason for this test, as I was working through a couple different scholars, be that he wants the pinnacle of his confrontation with Satan to take place not here on a mountain looking over the kingdoms of the world, but instead in Jerusalem. That seems to be the reason why Luke wants this flow, this theme of how Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem in his gospel. And there in Jerusalem, Jesus is going to ultimately confront and finally defeat Satan after this initial foray in the desert. If that's true, what's even more interesting is that Matthew and Mark both talk about Jesus being taken up to a mountain. You might remember that in your subconscious. But if I read this verse again to you, you'll notice that Luke doesn't want to associate Jesus in this moment with the mountain. So this is verse 5. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. No mountain is mentioned. Again, just interesting. Some biblical scholars have pointed out that Luke has mountains in his gospel. But Luke almost seems to really clearly associate mountains with revelation. Whenever... Luke has Jesus on a mountain, something profound and revelatory about God and God's redemptive work is revealed when Jesus selects the 12 apostles who will be the reconfigured Israel, when Jesus gathers on the mountain with Elijah and Moses in this moment of transfiguration. And so it almost seems like Luke knows we might be thinking of a mountain, but wants us to see that this this moment is not revelatory in a positive way, the glory of God speaking to Jesus. Although one could argue, and Luke probably is comfortable with us wondering if this moment is not revelatory in a negative way. Here on a mountain, a kind of revelation takes place in which it's probable that Satan is showing Jesus a vision, 
of some kind. I mean, like, it's, I know we sometimes are tempted to think literally of the Gospels that Satan walks Jesus all the way up to the top of a mountain. But instead, the image is almost that Jesus and Satan are shown this vision from high up, and the phrase in verse 5 is, of all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. It's almost as if instantaneously, Jesus is able to glimpse the seat or the center of power. Now, there's one last cultural twist here that's easy to miss in our English renditions. The phrase, all the kingdoms of the world, in the Greek, would have rung very familiar with the propaganda that Rome had in Jesus' day. Rome claimed to rule all the kingdoms of the world. That was one of Rome's great taglines. And to be fair to Rome, at that point, there was no empire that existed that had as much rulership over all the kingdoms of the world as Rome did. There was a genuineness to their claim that they really did rule all the kingdoms of the world. What really gets interesting then about this phrase, all the kingdoms of the world, is that there's a sense where Luke is actually presenting us as if Satan has authority and rulership over Rome. If you catch that in verse 6, I'll read it again. And he, Satan, said to Jesus, to you I will give all this authority, all Rome's authority, and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Imagine then the vividness of this scene, that Satan takes Jesus to a high place and in an instant shows him all of Rome, the center of power in Jesus' day. And he says to him, I have this and I can give it to you if you will but worship me. I mean, if you're a follower of Jesus, there are extraordinary anti-Roman claims here and anti-empire claims here about how seated at the center of power in Rome is actually this figure, not of Caesar, but of Satan, who's been pulling the strings, who's been corrupting, whispering, accusing. I mean, this actually gestures towards the struggle that I know many of us have with politics, the disillusionment with politics, that it feels like any time you concentrate power in the hands of human beings, Inevitably, corruption begins to swirl, self-interest begins to swirl. Even the most noble, the most good, the most pure find themselves face deep in the mud of politics when power is placed into their hands. And here in this scene, there's a sense in which Luke at least seems comfortable in his presentation suggesting maybe it's because behind seats of power, there is actually a satanic authority, a corruption that has taken place. However, as I wander down that path, I want to pull back and note that while Satan tells Jesus that he has all this authority and all this glory, while he tells Jesus he can give it to whoever Satan wants, we have to take a character test for just a minute here with this figure, the accuser, and we have to ask, does the accuser always tell the truth? Is the accuser actually a character in the scriptures that we should fully trust in the claims that this accuser makes? I mean, there's a reason why Satan is also known 
as the deceiver. Because it's likely that while surely there is some presence that Satan has behind the seat of Roman government, there is an even stronger likelihood that Satan in this moment is overextending his claims to authority. And in fact, if you track Luke's gospel almost immediately within the next chapter, Jesus is going to go confront these figures of satanic authority, these demons who have possessed different characters scattered across Israel. And with ease, Jesus is going to cast out and dismiss Satan's agents as lacking all authority here in the new kingdom that Jesus is enacting. So I think it's, it is helpful to note. So I think it's worth saying Satan probably has overextended his reach and continues to overextend the claims to power and authority that he offers us today. If Satan is pressing Jesus on this question of power, you'll notice that he has one caveat, one simple little test. In fact, if you sit with the literary flow of how Satan presents his offer to Jesus, Satan begins with all of the goodness. He begins with all of the authority. He mentions glory. He talks about how he's the one in charge, how he can do whatever he wants with it. And then right at the end, we get a conditional caveat. Hey, Jesus, just so you know, if you worship me, it will all be yours. Isn't it interesting that Satan offers power in exchange for worship? Really, this whole second test between Satan and Jesus is a test of power. It is a game of power. I mean, I can't help but think of Game of Thrones or even Rings of Power, the new Lord of the Rings show on Amazon, where there's this, there's this game taking place. Satan's saying, if you give me just one small thing, exchange just a little, I can give you so much power. But what Jesus would have to give up in worshiping Satan is, of course, everything. To offer worship is to swear loyalty, is to offer allegiance, is to acknowledge power, is to acknowledge whatever source of worship you're giving worship to as being the source which can supply whatever need it is you think is being met. I mean, the true exchange here is that Satan offers Jesus power in exchange for Jesus giving Satan all power over Jesus. There's this story of Dr. Faustus, which was written back in the days of Shakespeare. And the story goes that Faustus is dabbling in all kinds of different fields of knowledge, but he's a little bit bored. He's trying to figure out alchemy, how to turn any substance into gold. And yet he has equally been dabbling in necromancy and happens to have this moment where he summons a demon to himself, Faustus does. And in summoning this demon, the demon tells Faustus he can give Faustus all this power in exchange for Faustus offering in blood a covenant which seals his life to Satan. 24 years, and Satan will come to get Faustus. Now, the crazy thing of the story is that Faustus says, yes, he offers himself in exchange for power. And then, ironically, if you track the story of Faustus, he does very little over the next 24 years. But in a moment of panic, when the 24 years are up, the demon comes to Faustus to tell him that the time has arrived. Faustus' soul is required in exchange for the power that he had been given. And Faustus begins scrambling at this moment. In fact, he even thinks, if you go back to the account, that he might turn to Jesus, but by the time he even considers it, 
it is too late, and these demons appear for Faustus, and he is dragged with them down into hell. While it's a vivid story told in typical 16th century flourishing, and while when I was a high schooler and first had to read the story, I did not grapple with its deeper subtleties or themes, I'm compelled now as I think about Faustus by this great temptation of power. That if we're being honest, as much as we do not live in a necromancy world where any of us likely are being made offers by demons. I would argue that we do live in a cultural moment that is obsessed with power. In fact, there are all kinds of opportunities, all kinds of bids for power that not just interpersonally we face. I mean, interpersonally, friendships can be a source of power. You can wrestle with power over friends. Perhaps there are some friends that you look to because they have power you need. Thus, you spend time and associate yourself with them, whereas there are other friends who see that you have power that they need, and thus you exchange offering your presence, your influence, your wisdom to them as they sort of feed off of or receive from whatever it is they're looking to you to provide. But even just our corporate structures alone, again, as I'm here closer to the marketplace back in the city, I can't help but feel the relentless struggles within any even medium-sized organization, to receive a promotion, to warrant in this endless loop of year-end reviews and feedback processes, to warrant a promotion in which a greater title, a greater status could be bestowed upon us. And in exchange, what is it that our jobs, our organizations, our promotions are requiring from us? Well, they're requiring some form of sacrifice some form of worship. If we would but give more time, if we would but give more effort, if we would but give more flattery or pursuit or demonstrate a competency or skill, whatever it is, and of course I'm not trying to overly spiritualize our workplaces in a genuine sense of pursuit of excellence and promotions and all the rest. But I would note that we live in a culture of power, a culture that's obsessed with power, a culture that has much power to offer, be it through our jobs, our statuses, our influence, our wealth. And like Jesus, what's being asked from us is, in fact, our worship. If we would but worship whatever source is presenting itself to us, then maybe we could share more in the authority the splendor, the glory of the power that might be available to us. This is how Jesus is going to respond to this second test. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Just like Jesus' first response, this too is drawn from the scriptures. Interestingly, Jesus is moving backwards through Deuteronomy, whereas his first response was Deuteronomy 8. Now he's gone back to Deuteronomy 6. And again, he's pulling from Israel's story where Israel faced the great test of worship almost immediately as they're there on the mountain. And it's interesting that Moses is up for 40 days in the presence of God. Their leader has ascended. God is revealing to Moses the laws with which Israel will live by. And yet as Israel's there on the mountaintop with God so clearly in their midst, they feel 
the absence of assurance from Moses's presence. And so they begin to wonder, what if, what if there's an easier way for us to create this mediator, this buffer between us and God? If you actually sit in the golden calf incident, well, you notice that the golden calf is not in and of itself Israel's insistence that this golden calf is God and Yahweh, the Lord of Israel, is not God. Instead, the golden calf is for Israel their desire to have something more imminent, something more tactile, something more immediate for them to be in relationship to other than God. It is a counterfeit to God. It is a replacement God. It is in some ways a more manageable God. It's a God that they can have this direct access to. It's not as intimidating as this mountain. It's not as mysterious as that cloud that Moses had ascended to. It's probably not as rigorous or taxing, though it certainly will require something from them. And so Israel enters into this relationship with a statue of gold that they made by their own hands. And honestly, when you ask yourself, what is it that Israel is looking for? I think they just wanted the comfort or relief of knowing that they had control over relationship with power. That if they worshipped this golden calf, then in some way, God or the gods or whoever they thought was out there would hopefully take care of them. And again, I can't help but see here in this second test, the great test that each of us are facing and wrestling with. Whatever it is you're looking to for your happiness, whatever it is you're looking to for your comfort. For many of us, it is more than just food. I'm going after jobs with this one. I'll just sit with it for one more second with you. If your job, if the status of your job, if the influence of your job, if the rewards, the monetary compensation of your job is the thing which you are looking to to provide comfort, to provide safety, to provide satisfaction in life, then you will find yourself exchanging your worship in order to receive that power. And it is an exchange that will inevitably disappoint, if not crush you. Jesus is going to answer, you shall only worship the Lord your God. Actually, when I think about the golden calf, I, I find this really challenging, to be totally honest with you. And I, I want to be the first to confess that for me, even maybe especially in ministry, I've often found my job to be this incredible idol, this counterfeit God, this replacement God that feels like it's something easier to manage. It's something far more under my control. Like if I can just be good at my job, then maybe I can be good enough to feel happy and satisfied in life. Yet Jesus' insistence is you must stop looking for your fulfillment from something you can manage or get power over. Instead, you have to keep displacing these counterfeit idols. You have to keep resisting these golden calves that are popping up all around you. You have to even resist the golden calves that might be connected to something good, something Christian, something better. I know many of us work in nonprofits, work over in the church, work as a mother, work as a key caregiver. And any of these roles can in and of themselves become this form of power that we're just trying to exchange our worship to if only it will give us more control. But Jesus says there is only one source to which we should direct our worship. There's actually only one source that we are called to serve. 
I am incredibly challenged that in a culture that is obsessed with power, that we find ourselves called to a God who invites us to serve. This is going to be one of the great themes of Jesus' life. As he notes in the Gospel of Mark, I did not come to be served, but to serve. The term serve in Greek is actually the term diakonos, from which we get deacon. The idea of the diakonos, the deacon, in the ancient world was that the deacon was actually the waiter of tables. If you were to eat in someone's home, the servant, the deacon, would come to you and would take your order, would care for your needs, would wash your feet, would remove your plates. And this, of course, is the very role that Jesus himself will take at the Last Supper as his disciples come in. Jesus is standing there waiting for them with his robe off, with a towel in his hand, so that he could serve them. I think one of the great ways to resist the test of power, one of the great ways to resist the temptation to worship something else, is to turn around in these contested areas of your life, be it your job or your status or your identity, and to ask yourself, how can I use the power I already have to serve those that I am in contact with? How might I worship the Lord my God through serving instead of being served wherever God has placed me? If this is the second test, What is the third and final test? We're told in verse 9 that the devil took Jesus to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Now, this is, of course, a scene change. And Luke wants us to notice Jesus has shifted from Rome or power in all the kingdoms of the earth now to Jerusalem, to the center of Israel power, to the center of Israel's worship, to the presence of God in Israel's midst. I mean, Jerusalem is the center of the center in the Bible. It is actually where God would reside. It is where God's presence was meant to extend out to all of the earth. The reason why Jerusalem was the center of the center was because Jerusalem had the temple, the place where God dwelt, the place where God reigned in Israel. So the devil takes Jesus right here into the center of it all. And we're meant to capture that the devil is trying to offer Jesus in this moment all of the assurances, all of the comforts, all of the draws and appeal of being right next to God. Yet Satan is going to use this moment to offer Jesus another test. And he does it at the pinnacle of the temple. I was looking this up. The highest point of the temple, as we're told by Josephus, was about 450 feet tall, which in modern terms is about 34 floors up. As Josephus, with, in my opinion, a little bit of a dry wit, notes, if you were to stand at this pinnacle of the temple, you might get a little bit dizzy. At this highest point, the devil is going to say once more, this is verse 9 again, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against stone. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. Now this this one is kind of strange as a test at first glance, because it's so inherently violent and dangerous. I think it can be easy to miss what the appeal of this kind of test for Jesus might be. But if you think about it, if you're there at Jerusalem, at the highest point of the temple, then the people of Jerusalem 
would know if something went down. One of the clearest ways to rise to infamy or success as a miracle worker in Israel was to do anything associated with the temple. In fact, in the next several hundred years, as various charismatic figures, as various miracle workers would rise up within the ranks of Israel, throughout the Roman Empire, the the key starting point for any figure would be to do some dramatic act at the temple. If you did something at the temple, then you would demonstrate to the people of Israel your status, you would solidify your fame, and you would gather a massive following. So I think the real closing temptation that Satan is offering Jesus is some mix here of validating his role as the Messiah, of quickly and easily amassing the trust and support of the people. I mean, if Jesus did this, the people would follow him. The people of Israel would probably crown him on the spot as king. And there's even some intriguing resonance here of Satan offering the path to all of this glory, the path to all of this fame, being a path that inherently promises safety. Like, if Jesus takes this scripture that Satan is presenting to him seriously, the scripture from Psalm 91, and he believes that God will, in fact, protect him, guard him, that his angels will be sent so they would bear Jesus up, lest not even even his foot strike a stone. Then what Jesus would prove once and for all, not only to his followers, but to himself, to anyone who would associate themselves with Jesus, That God is a God of safety. God is a God of comfort. That God will protect Jesus. And if God will protect Jesus, then surely God will protect you. I mean, the devil says to Jesus, isn't this what the psalm is saying? Isn't this what Psalm 91 is about? God takes care of his children. God takes care of his people. I mean, if God takes care of his people, God takes care of his children, if you are the son of God. He says it again. The phrasing, if you are the son of God, is a present active participle in the Greek, which has this sense of ongoing, continued affirmation. It's as if Satan is saying to Jesus, assuming as we all do, you're a son. Assuming you are who you claim you are as a son of God. Well, then simply cast yourself down, throw yourself from here, and what you'll demonstrate to everyone, to yourself, to me, to the crowds, is that God cares for his children. God will keep you safe. God will command his angels concerning you. On their hands, they'll bear you up, and not even your foot will touch the ground. What I enjoy about Luke's culminating build here in these tests is that I really resonate with Matthew and Mark as they build their test to power and to this offer of power from Satan, power contested by worship. But I do enjoy Luke's framing here well, if I'm being honest, even at the tender age that I am, if it was a choice between power and safety, as I look back at my life, like if you were to give me the Faustus proposal at the age of 22, that I could have unlimited power in exchange for worship, or you were to give me the safety promise at the age of 22, that I could actually avoid all suffering, all physical, emotional suffering. I would choose the safety offer, knowing what I currently know now, over the power offer. Because on some level, while power is profound and it's allure, while it's so tempting, 
while it feels like there's so much that could be done with power. On a personal level, I just long to be safe. Like, I just long to live in a world where I don't hurt, where I don't feel the aches and the pains of life. I mean, even when I just get physically sick, it's so miserable, let alone when something hurts or breaks, let alone when I enter deep stages of emotional distress, of betrayals, of discomfort, of the agony of unknown status and relationship and standing to others. I think that on some level what Satan is really offering Jesus in this moment is a path to comfort. What if, what if the way to follow God was to call for and to embrace safety above all else? And as Satan puts this in front of Jesus, Jesus is going to say to him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I'm struck here that for as much as I long for safety, nothing about the path that Jesus is on is going to be safe. In fact, one of the most revolutionary claims of Jesus that he makes throughout his life, that he will demonstrate ultimately in his crucifixion and resurrection, is this radical notion that God needed to work through suffering, not through safety. That as much as God offers safety, as much as God loves to provide safety, the world in which we inhabit is not itself safe. And so the only way for God to move through the evil, through the disappointments, through the heartache, is for God to embrace and to redeem suffering itself. For any of you who have listened to this podcast before, you know the first study we embarked on was the study of Job. And I cannot help but think of Job in this moment. The real challenge to our safety is that as soon as things begin to not feel safe, we cannot help but turn and brutally question God himself. It's as if the disappointments of suffering are so real, are so vivid, are so heavy, that instead of turning to accuse any missteps on our part, instead of turning to, to wonder where things might have gone wrong, I mean, most suffering presents itself so forcibly against us that the only sense we can make of it is to turn around and to question, God, where were you? God, how could you have let this happen? God, why? Why if you cared? Why if I am one of your children? Why if I have faithfully followed you? Would you allow such distress, such disruption, such disorientation to enter into my life? This then is what's so profound about Jesus's faith in this moment as he's presented safety from Satan above all else. Jesus is going to clearly see that at the heartbeat of faith, at the heartbeat of trust itself, is the refusal to test God. The refusal to test God. Now, I've been pondering this one for the last couple weeks, because I think when it comes to disillusionment, when it comes to doubt, when it comes to deconstruction or disenchantment, really whatever D word you're resonating with at this moment. I'm struck that for so many of us, the arc is that we encounter some kind of suffering, some kind of abuse. And it often takes place by those who we had trusted, those who we wanted to believe in, those who in innocence, in a former state of enchantment, we enjoyed the safety and comfort and clarity that they provided us, whatever it was. And this could be a parent, it could be a pastor, it could be a friend, it could be a mentor. 
But at some point, some suffering comes in and disrupts that safety, disrupts that trust. And again, the most horrific kind of suffering is when it comes at those who we particularly trusted, those who we particularly thought should be trustworthy, like a parent or a pastor, and those who ultimately, through whatever violence they brought to us, betrayed what we should have been able to trust. That is how you sow the seeds of a radical breakdown of disenchantment, disillusionment, deconstruction. Yet in the deconstructing, what seems to happen over and over to me is that we turn from the figure that should have been trustworthy. We see that that figure pointed to or claimed dependence upon some greater authority in God. And we look to the one whom they claimed as their authority source, as God himself. And we begin to test or maybe even accuse God himself. Now, I want to be really clear in this test that I think there is plenty of room for doubt. I think even Job is a helpful complement here to what Jesus is saying. Job represents the radical act of faithful testing. The radical act in which true suffering demands to be felt and will not be satisfied by compliance or an easy slide back into former states of enchantment. So I just want to be clear. The goal when you are disenchanted is never to simply return. You can't return to the way things were. But I think if there's any insight Jesus is trying to offer for those of us who may have experienced a form of deconstruction, or who are currently pressed with a deep disillusionment with the church, is that Jesus says, ultimately, it's never going to be testing that restores relationship with God. It cannot be a test of God that brings you back to some kind of faith in God. I think if there's any insight into the deep longing of the deconstructed it is that they actually miss the innocence that they had and they're they're so caught trying to return to that innocence that former way of being the only option they see is to test god back into that innocence or to have god somehow definitively prove god's self against their perpetrator against the one who abused them and that only when god so clearly separates and differentiates himself from whoever it was that hurt them that's the only time that they could trust god again and i think with great heaviness as i think about relationships as i think about my own life my own disappointments think about those within the church in various levels who have hurt or betrayed or disappointed me I sit here with Jesus' words and I see that his vision that he's gently trying to press as a balm on my own wounds is you can't test God enough to get you to trust him again. You simply can't. You can't test God to the point of being trustworthy again. That isn't how God works. That isn't how trust works. In fact, as I've been thinking about this passage, I couldn't help but think about this diagnosis in the DSM-5 of borderline personality disorder. Borderline is very real, yet there's definitely a spectrum in it. On its most like simple reading, 
borderline is a personality type that has intense fragmentation in their trust of people. And so if you interact with a borderline person on one moment, it seems like they really highly value you, that you're this incredible person to them, they care deeply about you. And then the next moment, all of a sudden they've flipped. And sometimes it's so hard to know like why have they flipped? And it can be little things like you didn't text them back fast enough, or you, you didn't say something the right way to them, or it can be big things like you did to them what those other people did to them, or it can be nothing to do with you at all. It's so painful to be in relationship to a borderline person because oftentimes a borderline personality will use this tactic of testing to try to see if they can prove your trustworthiness to themselves. They'll often even explicitly set up tests to you. Like, you need to call me every Monday. You need to prove to me that you love me by paying for X, Y, or Z. You need to show that you will never hurt me the way that those other people did. Ultimately, borderline personality is rooted in trauma. It's rooted in this fragmentation that that has been solidified through past broken experiences. And from that trauma, a pattern of relating to others has solidified in such a way that it's almost impossible for a borderline person to trust without first trying to test over and over and over again. Yet if the therapist is working with someone who struggles with borderline personality, the first goal, the first step that needs to be taken in order to start building a true ecosystem of relationship around them is that the therapist would begin working with the borderline person to show them testing cannot definitively prove or protect your heart again. In fact, testing actually has this danger that it's going to drive away those who could and do, in fact, want to be close to you, want to be in relationship with you. If you relentlessly test them, they will not stick around and you will find yourself in the very isolation and loneliness that you so deeply fear. I can't help but think that I have often been somewhat borderline in my relationship with God. And I I don't say that to belittle borderline. I say that to take seriously the fragmentation that I've experienced within myself around faith at key points. And yet Jesus is saying, you cannot test your relationship back into trust. Instead, in some way, with some time, with enough healing, and maybe even with Jesus himself as your guide, Jesus himself as the one who walks alongside you, eventually, for you to return to God, you're going to have to learn to begin to trust without testing God. There's something so beautiful and reassuring to me, even as I reflect on that profound struggle not to test, that here at the heart of these three trials, these three testings, we find temptations that arguably every single one of us have failed in at key points. I mean, I have certainly failed when it comes to the hunger test, that I've looked to temporary satisfactions to numb out, to distract, or to fill up when what I've really needed and have been longing for on such a profound, deeper level is God himself. I have looked towards power and have offered my worship in exchange the hopes that in power I might be able to control or to protect my own life. And I know I have been so desperate to cling to safety that I've been willing to hurl accusations 
test God in a way that reveals profoundly my inability in that moment to trust God with my deeper needs. But if that's true, what these trials and testings reveal is that Jesus actually faced and overcame that which I could not overcome on my own. In fact, and this is so important with these temptations of Jesus, I think so often when we preach on them, we get in the danger of being so application-minded that we almost set up these different temptations. It's like, these are what Jesus struggled with. These are what you struggle with, so you can overcome them by maybe memorizing scripture or by having enough faith or by now that you know this is how Satan is going to test you, like this is, these are the steps to overcome that testing. Instead, I think the true gospel understanding of this scene is that none of us actually on our own are capable of resisting Satan in the way that Jesus did. Like Jesus alone, only Jesus was able to stand in the wilderness and face the trials that have overcome every single one of us, that have been overcoming humanity since we have been created. Only Jesus was truly capable of resisting the lies that the Satan was offering to him in this moment, and to stand instead in proximity, in faith, in trust, even as his body raged in hunger, even as his heart likely feared this lack of safety the rest of his life was going to contain, even as something in him knew that power was rightfully his and that safety would be far more enjoyable than suffering, even as Jesus faced all of those temptations. He was able to stand in faith, in trust, and by doing so demonstrate how he would embody redemption. As we get to the end of these testings, verse 13 is kind of interesting. Verse 13 says, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So I was looking into this. I just found it interesting that Luke would frame it that way, that the devil's waiting for an opportune time. Yet if you jump ahead in the Gospel of Luke, what you're going to find is that more testing of Jesus is going to take place. I mean, the Gospels are full of these dynamics of demons confronting, testing Jesus, even though they present no real threat. Uh, disciples questioning, testing Jesus, and Jesus looking to his disciples to test, to confirm how much they know, how ready they are to confess. Uh, the transfiguration as this profound moment on a mountain where Jesus' identity and status as the Son of God is truly revealed. But, but the true culmination where Satan and the language around testing is going to resurface as a literary arc in Luke is going to come all the way at the end of Luke's gospel in chapter 22. All of a sudden, after Luke kind of put the theme down like any great storyteller, the theme is going to explode back onto the scene as Jesus sits down with his disciples at the Last Supper. Luke is going to quite literally say, Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, and he went away and plotted this plan to betray Jesus. Jesus will then say to Peter, Peter, do not let Satan tempt you and sift you like wheat when you are tempted to betray me. And finally, Jesus is going to go up to the Mount of Olives, another mountain, another revelation. And there in a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is going to withdraw with his disciples. And this is now verse 40 of Luke 22. It says, When he, Jesus, came to the place, he said to his disciples, 
pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. It's subtle, but it's a profoundly moving arc in the confrontation with Satan that Luke is just trying to get our attention gently. That in Jerusalem, there would be one last great test. That this test would take place within a garden. And the test would once more press directly into all three of these questions. Questions of hunger, power, of safety. And it would be as if a voice was whispering to Jesus, Surely there's another way. Surely there's another way. And yet, even here, in this greatest moment of testing, Jesus is going to return to these words, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Henry Nouwen wrote a justly famous meditation on this one verse from Jesus called Drink This Cup. I think Nouwen is right that here at the heart of the Garden of Gethsemane is is the great test of faith. I would argue that wherever you're at, the, the challenge in so many seasons of testing, the challenge in so many different wildernesses, is that we long for the relief We long for connection to be returned. We long for some sort of justice to be enacted, some sort of clarity to be received. (laughs) Here in the garden, in the moment of his greatest trial, in fact, in the moment when Jesus would confront finally and ultimately the accuser who is whispering and offering him any other way, Jesus' insistence that he offers to us is this prayer, Father, if you are willing, Remove this cup. Nevertheless, it is not my will, but yours be done. My prayer for you is that wherever you're at in a season of testing, whatever wilderness you face, that you would first and foremost know that you are not alone. That there is one who has gone before you, who has faced the wilderness in order that you and I could be freed, who has resisted every testing, that would attempt to pull him away from his identity as the Son of God, so that you and I could, by grace with no work, be received as children of God. And that there is one who has, in fact, drank the dregs of the cup of suffering, so that you and I, even as we face our own trials, might find new life, and resurrection on the other side of every death. This has been John Perrine with The Burning Word. Grace and peace.